It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk to Gavin Rothery. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me as always is Gardner. Oh, it is a great day to talk to Gavin, let me tell you. And joining us shortly will be a very special guest. Gavin Rothery, the jack of all trades filmmaker, joined us for an in-depth interview, which we are very excited to share with you shortly. Gavin is known for writing and directing Archive, the independent sci-fi feature, which was released in 2020 and is available on Amazon Prime, as well as being a key component in the creation of Moon, Duncan Jones's 2009 sci-fi film starring Sam Rockwell, which is available on Hulu. Gavin also works in the video game industry, and he spoke with us about all of that and more in this interview, which we seriously cannot wait to share with you. This really was an incredible conversation because Gavin really is that jack-of-all-trades kind of filmmaker. And he was able to give us insights into all kinds of different aspects of the filmmaking process. This really is up there with the best interviews we've ever done because of the super in-depth answers that he gave us throughout. And we cannot wait for you guys to hear it. As a reminder, on this podcast, we talk about movies we love and interview independent filmmakers. Every Friday, we release a full episode, usually with a guest, and we're doing bonus episodes on Wednesdays or Thursdays. This is this week's full-length episode, and last Thursday, we did a bonus episode recapping the Oscars. Next Wednesday, we have another bonus episode where we will be discussing Batman Begins as part of a mini-series on the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. So get excited for those episodes, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. So there's not much else to get to before the interview. The only thing I will say is you can actually listen to this even if you haven't seen Moon or Archive, Gavin's movies. I would recommend watching them first as we do talk about mild plot spoilers, but the movies wouldn't be ruined if you listened first. So either watch first, then listen, or listen first, then watch. But either way, you're going to want to see both these films. Now that I've said that, let's get right into it. Here it is, right now. Our interview with Gavin Rothery. We are joined now by a very special guest. Gavin Rothery is here today to talk to us about his filmmaking. Gavin, thanks for being here. Thank you for pronouncing my name properly. That was perfect. Awesome. I was, I got nervous, so I'm glad that I didn't mess up. <laughs> you did good. Awesome. Gavin is known for his 2020 feature length sci-fi thriller archive which is now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video and available for rent or purchase anywhere else you watch movies. And it's also available in DVD form on Amazon. Gavin, how did I do on that background? Pretty good. Just everyone should get out there and treat themselves to a nice Blu-ray. 2022, let's all celebrate physical media. We're all at home all the time anyway, right? Why not have a nice pretty shelf full of beautiful art? I love it. I. My background wasn't showing great before, so I decided to put it on blur, but I do have my DVDs and Blu-rays behind me, and Archive is in that collection. So. Oh, you want the, oh, yes, I made the cut, yes. Oh. Yes, absolutely, I had to. As soon as I watched it, we'll get into it, but as soon as I watched it, it was 
what we describe as a Duncan movie on this podcast a lot of times. <laughs> this falls directly into that category, which right, means cool. I love it. Take it. Yeah. Nice one. But I want to give a quick shout out to your shelf also. The background you've got rocking there is awesome, too. Like we're, we're huge Star Wars fans uh, over here on this side. So the helmets and the, and the ships and everything you got going on, I'm, I'm geeking out right now looking at it. <laughs> yeah, I've got this. I'm in my office and I like to try and surround myself with like inspirational things. So, you know, it's all the Star Wars original trilogy, 80s Battlestar Galactica, Kubrick stuff, Silent Running. You know, it's all that kind of vintagey stuff where my heart is. I love it. So I know I gave a very brief background, but could you tell our audience a little bit about your background in film and maybe how you got started and where you are now? Yeah, so I worked in the games industry for a few too many years now. I've got like a, a dual career at the moment where I work on film projects and also work in the games industry. So um, <clears throat> one of the kind of dirty secrets about the film industry is like you don't just make a movie and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you're rich and sorted out for money for the rest of your life. Like you've got to do a few movies before you kind of get to that point. So one of the big tips that I always, if, you know, a lot of times people sort of ask, like aspiring directors ask, like, you know, how do you, how do you do it? Like there's just one thing that you have to do. Obviously, it's not that simple, but there is one piece of advice that I would think applies to pretty much everybody which is have two jobs, like have a job where you can take a break from it whilst you go off and make your first movie and then come back to it and just keep getting your bills paid whilst you try and figure out what happens next. Because even if you are straight on that like staircase to success, between shooting your first movie and going through post is probably going to be like a year and maybe another six months or more from when your film is delivered to the release date. So straight away, that's like 18 months, two years. And it's like, you know, how are you going to pay your bills? It's like, it's cool if you got paid like enough money to be able to live like that over that period. But even if you did, you're going to burn through it. So, you know, it's like if you can have another job. I mean, a lot of people that work as directors are also like editors and things like that. Well, they've got some kind of commonality, like they're on a kind of a separate, uh, some kind of a parallel track, like some part of the filmmaking business. Mine happens to be concept art in the games industry which does span over into concept art in, you know, other other aspects of the media, like, you know, TV, film, whatever. But yeah, so I am somewhat on parallel tracks, but um, the work that I do is for um, Star, Star, excuse me, Star Citizen, the uh, massively multiplayer online game that's uh, being put together by Chris Roberts at Cloud Imperium Games. So I design ships for Star Citizen. So if you're a, a fan of the, um, of the verse, or you get in there and fly things around the odds are, uh, you might be in one of my ships. You might be flying one of my babies. So, yeah, so my career has basically had, like, two strands to it. Now, if I kind of wind back um, to the late 90s, I met my old friend, Duncan Jones, who'd been working at a games company. And he was working as a writer, and I was um, I was on the art team. And we just we just became friends because we liked the same stuff. And it was kind of strange because I didn't know who his dad was for, like, a year after we'd met. But obviously, it turns out his dad's, like, his dad's David Bowie is like usually a famous pop star but um it was just like Duncan from work really and um we liked all the same stuff and <clears throat> he was just finishing film school and he studied at the London International Film School and the way that that school works is you go on the course do your degree do all your lectures lessons you all that you finish all your kind of practical stuff and then you have to deliver a graduation film to graduate and what tends to happen is they've got like an open door on that. So 
Um, a lot of people that go to that school and do that course, they graduate, sorry, they finish the course and then they go off into the world. And it can be years later, they'll turn in a short film and that becomes a graduation piece. So there can be quite a, a long time scale between people finishing the course and graduating. And Duncan was in that sort of limbo period where he didn't know what he wanted to do for a short film and he wanted to graduate. He didn't want to like leave it hanging for years and years, but he always wanted to do sci-fi stuff. But he was just like a guy, you know, at home, like and this is back in the sort of late nineties. It's like, how do you do that? And at the same time, I was working in a games company on the art team. And this is back in like PlayStation One days where, you know, it's crazy to think about it now, but you know, you create in characters for games and it's all about polycounts like polycount 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 like you've got 250 triangles to make a character for a game you know so it was, it was a very different time back then like the role of an artist like all the pipelines and stuff we've got now none of that stuff was established very kind of very loose and very kind of like figure it out as you go along uh really not much structure in the studios at all but my day-to-day -day work was very much swimming in the shallow end when it came to the 3d software because I was using 3D Studio Max at the time. And this is before dedicated renderers were widely available. It was really back in the day. And I always wanted to play with like the fancier toys in the toy box, but I just never really needed to from work. I mean, I got to dip my toes in now and again doing SMB work, but it just I wanted to do more of it. Like that was where the allure was, was like the cool graphics. And yeah, Duncan wanted to do sci-fi films. So he wanted to do a, a short film. So we just got together and chatted about it. And I was like, oh, I can do this, I can do that. You know, we'll, he was doing like, I remember the first thing we did together, we was doing, um, there was a competition going on in school for Kodak, I think it was, disposable cameras. I don't know if he'll make those anymore. And he wanted to do like a, it was like a competition for like a 30 second spot. And he wanted to do it like Blade Runner. And he's like, how do we do that? He's like, I can get a set built with like a little food stand and we get a lot of practical rain in. How do we like make it Blade Runner? And so I was like, I'll oh, start off on the sky, we'll pan it down, I'll put a police car, you know, Blade Runner spinner in there, I'll extend the city out put a load of neon in and it will you know it'll set the scene and so we did all we did a bunch of stuff like that and it, it came out looking really nice we just ended up working together on stuff i just got sucked into this film stuff that he was wanting to do and he ended up pretty soon he ended up moving into the house that i was sharing with a bunch of friends and we just set our computers up next to each other in the lounge played counter-strike and decided we were going to try and make a movie and eventually that became moon but it was just like 10 years of us just living together, just doing all kinds of stuff, just trying to get our careers moving. Um, we both ended up sort of stepping back from the game industry. I was still doing freelance jobs, but I was really concentrated on trying to get the film stuff going. So it was just so cool and like so exciting. And we did a whole bunch of stuff together. We did all kinds of stuff over that period, like just working as like a sort of a creative partnership. So I was doing all the art stuff and he was doing the writing stuff. We just chuck all the ideas together and we get on set and... I'd be like building stuff. He'd be directing. I'd be doing storyboards, animatics, and supervising VFX and all that stuff. So we were just kind of mashing it all up and getting stuff done, really. It was really fun. You know, so I never went to film school. I did illustration and graphic design at university. So I didn't really have aspirations to get into film until I met Duncan and just sort of got sucked up. Oops, excuse me. Hey. That's an alarm going off on my phone telling me that we need to talk in like eight minutes because all the time has got messed up. So sorry about that. Yeah, so yeah, I got into film by getting pulled in uh, with what Duncan was doing and was our interest just aligning. And that kind of classic sort of naivety you have when you're getting into new stuff and you don't know what you can't do. So everything seems kind of possible and open. 
and you just like launch yourself out and just start doing all this stuff. That's basically what we did. And yeah, eventually after 10 years, we had a couple of false starts trying to get a movie going, but eventually we managed to make a moon. That was that whole thing came from myself and Duncan just desperate after a we had a thing that we were looking at doing and it was going to be a, a game and a film and looking at it now, it was, it was too ambitious, but we really thought we were going to sell this thing. And we were talking to Sega about it and we had a couple of production companies we were talking to. And it was really exciting. We had a, a, a technology, there's like a VFX technology that I came up with for, this is back in like 2006, five, six. We did a, a test shoot and it was in mocap inside a, a blue screen cyclorama. Um, okay, it was before things even really went green. It was still back in the days of blue. We had a friend of ours who we built him an outfit, which was mostly um, like a, a motion capture blue suit with, uh, you know, tracking markers on it. And <clears throat> the idea that I had to try and make it look real was this This was in response to Final Fantasy Spirits Within, uh, which blew my mind when that film came out. Because if you remember that movie when it dropped, it 2003 or four or something, that had like cutting edge CG at the time. And I remember I remember watching an interview with the filmmakers, it's someone on the VFX side of things, and they were talking about, um, I can't remember the character's name, the Professor Beautiful character, you know, the, the, the leading lady. And they were talking about how they created her, because at the time she was like the high, high benchmark for realistic CG humans. And I remember this guy talking about how they spent 15,000 hours of render cycles on, a, on her hair for something that they were doing and they needed 50,000 render hours for, the, for her hair for this part of the movie. And, that, and he was like sort of almost like bragging about it, like how awesome that was. I remember thinking that's just, you just, that's just a waste. Like just shoot real hair. You know, get, you've got an actress there in a motion capture suit. You could use her hair and it'll look better than any CG hair. And so it occurred to me that we could make it look pretty cool if we just kept all the human bits. So any skin... And anything just around the skin, we photographed that for real. And this is before motion tracking really became a thing. I mean, the high-end post facilities were using a package called the uh, Beaujou at that time, which costs like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands for a license. So tracking cameras was like, I mean, now it's like completely standard free tools, pretty much. Back then, it was a hugely exotic big deal to track a camera. It was like bleeding edge technology back then. And so I had the idea of, whilst we were in the motion capture environment, putting a crown on the camera, which was just like a, you know, a three-axis rod construction with tracking marks on. And the idea was, whilst we're in the volume filming, the camera's also in the volume, and the camera's being picked up by the uh, motion capture cameras. So the idea is, when you get your data back, you get your actor moving around, and you get your camera. And we knew what lens we were using, and we knew the sort of technical specifics of the camera. So what we should get is a couple of files. We'll get a motion capture file with a whole bunch of points moving around in 3D. We know what the camera is. We can isolate that, and we've got our performance. Then we've got um, a plate that the camera shot, which is just skin. And he had like an armored suit on. He had like a big collar and stuff. And that was all dressed for for um, for camera. And every, and then when it stopped, it cut off the blue, and it all had tracking markers on it. And he had like a big blue gun with tracking markers on. I remember it was so down and dirty. Like the gun, the gun that I built for him to use, I put like a, a broom handle sticking out of it, and it came about three feet out of it. And I was on the set too, all dressed in blue, and I was hitting it with like a cricket bat to get the recoil when he fired the gun. It was so down and dirty. 
But, you know, it's the kind of thing you do back then. But the idea is when we got this footage back, we'd have a three uh, a motion capture file with, you know, actor and the camera more crucially. And so if we set that up in 3D, link to the camera to the, the, the motion capture crown, set it up to match a real camera, we could then bring in the live action play and it should drop just on top of the CG character. Then we can create the CG, link that to the skeleton, create the environment, the character. And those two things should just comp over each other in After Effects. And it worked and it looked, it looked fucking cool. It looked so good. And this is like 2000, oh God, what was it? I think it was about 2004 when we did this. It looked like proper cool next gen shit. We spent about a, a, maybe just under a year working on it. And this is the stuff we were doing back then. We were doing all this experimental stuff and it was really fun. Like we were really just getting into all this kind of stuff. But <clears throat> that technology that we'd come up with, that is it's a gimmick basically, but it worked beautifully. I mean, we slaved over it for quite a few months to get it looking right, but we could have shaken that down into a proper pipeline and you know, we wanted to do a movie with it. And God, if we could have got that done, I mean, there's no way a couple of first timers are going to get like 80, 90 million to make a film, which is what it would have taken. But that's another thing with the naivety in the filmmaking industry, right? You think you can do that kind of thing and you can't. You think you can. And that's one of the big things that you get shaken out of you, right? When you start seriously pursuing a career. It's like you can have an idea for a, a, a trilogy of fantasy films that will cost $150 million each. You're just never going to get to make them. So, you know, it's all about figuring out. I mean, this is why in the filmmaking space, people like Shane Carruth are just, these are the people to look at. I mean, he spent $7,000 making Primer and that, and he's off, you know. Look at Shane Carruth. Think like Shane Carruth. You can figure that out. Movies like Coherence, another big favorite of mine, like you can make these like seven, $10,000 movies and you can like smash it with them. And yeah, I mean, another example, not sci-fi, but Blair Witch, that's another $10,000 film that grossed over 150 million. Obviously, extreme outlier, not like everybody's just going to be able to nail that. That's the high, high, high benchmark, but it does show you what's possible. So I've just got so much respect for those filmmakers because they figured it out. So one thing I'm always thinking of in the back of my mind is like, what's my $10,000 film? What is that? And the thing is with Archive, I actually managed to think the conversations for Archive moved quicker than that process coagulated in my mind. So I've still got my like $10,000 movie that I still keep chipping away at, which maybe I'll get to make that one day. Maybe just like a little fun side project. But um you know, this this stuff's this stuff's really interesting. So essentially what happened with Moon was myself and Duncan were um we were sat at home and we were I remember we'd been out drinking and we were a little bit it's like 2006, I think it was. We were we were a little bit drunk. And we lived in a in a house together in Chelsea. We found we had this amazing house. We had um an apartment on the King's Road, which is like the really posh, fancy shopping strip in West London. And we had this really weird apartment that we got that they were having a hard time letting because it was like a weird four-bedroom place it was great we had a roof access and all sorts but um we managed to find that by chance and we just moved in and basically never wanted to move out so we had this awesome pad in the middle of, well it was like a great pad it was in a great spot it was like an okay pad in a great spot um and that was our moon house it's funny i remember when we did it um when we were actually filming moon duncan bought a moon um like a globe and we took the, it was a rented house, but we were just, you know, 
been wild. We took the, the lamp down from the lounge, from the ceiling, and we put this moon in. And we put a marker dot on and marked it as Sarang, where the base is in moon. When we moved out, we just left it. And I wonder whether it's still there or whether the people just came in and thought it was a bunch of trash and binned it or something. But there, if no one's touched it, there is a, a, a ceiling lamp in a lounge in an apartment in Chelsea of the moon, like geographically accurate, with a marked marked point of the Sarang base in it. That's wild. I, I want to mention something real quick. You, you mentioned coherence. Uh, Jim Burkett was actually our very first guest on this show. He was the first person that we interviewed. So we share your love for coherence as well. We love talking to independent filmmakers and finding out how they achieve these visions, you know, getting down and dirty, like you were saying. Before we before we move on to archive, I want to ask you one more question about Moon. And this is kind of for the benefit of our audience. You were the, the visual effects supervisor officially. Uh, according to like IMDb on that film. Can you tell us a little bit about, obviously that doesn't tell the whole story. You were a lot more involved in that production, but can you tell us a little bit about that process of shooting Moon and the uh, the post-production process as well? Yeah, well, with Moon, I mean, the whole film basically came from myself and Duncan just trying to figure out how to make a movie. Um, as far as the VFX goes, most of the VFX was actually handled by a company called Cinesign, which are also in the credits. I was doing like a, a side team because we ran out of money, basically, and we needed extra stuff done. But I also did a lot of stuff on the way in, like a lot of digital map work set up and all sorts of stuff. So my roles were all over the place. The I've got a little story that illustrates this um, really well, which is... When we were making the film, we were just getting stuff done, right? It was just problems everywhere, solve them, solve them. Do you, you might be familiar with the actor Matt Berry, right? He's in Moon, he plays one of the controllers in Moon. Right now he's, you know, he's doing what we do in the shadows and also, you know, he's, Matt's like huge now. But yeah, so myself and Duncan knew him from the, there's a pub in London that we used to go to that it just happened that he was at as well and we just got friendly through a couple of friends. But I remember Matt told me something at one time. It was, it was his attitude to when he's working. And he says, like, every time you do something, you don't know if you're going to get to do it again. And you might never be asked back. Like, that might be it. And so he said, like, he basically puts everything he's got into whatever he's doing as if it was the last time he's ever going to get to do it. So it better be good, right? That's his whole, his whole mantra. And I just thought that was, like, a really sort of simple approach, but super smart. And he really... He really sincerely meant it when he when he said it, and I was like, that's good, I really like that. And it really stuck with me, and it kind of overlapped with a lot of my own thinking with this stuff. So with Moon, we got Sam Rockwell. We're in Shepperton Studios. He gave us a free studio because they weren't busy. We got a free studio at Shepperton. Let us shot Alien. We're working with Bill Pearson, who made the Nostromo miniatures. I've got free reign to do whatever I want. I'm just designing all this stuff. And the whole thing's like myself and Duncan in our uh, bedrooms in the in the um, in our flat, and we just wander through into each other's bedrooms and be like, "Oh, I've done this thing. What do you think? I've got this idea for this corridor." I'm like, yeah, cool. I've done, done this, done that, and that was what Moon was. So the delineation of what I was doing, and also another thing too, we had like we had some money, right? But when we started Moon, the original conceit for moon was we think we might be able to get 250,000 pounds so let's come up with an idea for a movie that we can shoot for that it's like if we just you know throw ourselves at everybody's feet we might be able to get 250 grand we ended up getting like 10 times that in the end which was awesome you know once we got Sam Rockwell and 
basically what we did, it was funny because, excuse me, if we just go back to um, that night we had when we'd been drinking and we were just really fed up and we were like, Ugh. basically the thing that got Moon started over everything else was we basically, we were just, we just said to each other, look, let's just start like we're doing this. We won't, we'll just start. We'll just start doing all the work. We'll just start doing it. We've got a story idea we've been talking about. You know, start writing it, start designing it, start everything. And we did. And we started it as if we were making it. And it just picked up momentum and uh, it kept going, which was something that was, I was, we were delighted and surprised. But I've done that since with other things. And it's kind of, surprising how if you just start doing it and actually tell yourself you're doing it a lot of the times things fall in behind you it's not a bad mindset to have with things like this especially when things are really ambitious you know you just gotta it's gonna there's gonna be a grind it's gonna be a grind and a long road but just start it so when was i with all of that sorry i jumped around a little bit oh yeah okay so moving back to um finished the movie well not finished it we're finishing it and one job that comes up late on is the credit roller, which is where the producers typically, they'll already have a list of everybody's names, who did what, but they got to go around and double check everything. So they come around and talk to you and they're like, okay, got you on here is this and this. Blah, blah, blah. And they'll, that's part of the job, right? It's just making sure that that's tight and accurate because it's, it's important, right? People put a lot of a lot of themselves into their work on a well, on anything but when you get a creative endeavor like a movie if people are really bought into the script especially if it's an indie film and maybe people aren't getting paid full rate like you know moon was like half rate for the crew i was on a lot less than that because they got me for like almost nothing but you know i was just happy to be there i mean <laughs> score it was right very happy to be there i got on moon i got paid fifteen thousand pounds for working for 22 months i was broke i was in debt I was literally like a couple of cans of soup in a food cupboard. And I was like, oh my God, I'd like, what did I have? Like, I had about 21,000 pounds of credit card debt. It was bad. I wouldn't say that's good advice. It's just what I did, right? And it's all fine now. But when I say it's a long road, a long, hard road, that was like part of my hard road was getting myself out of debt. But no regrets, had to do it, wouldn't have happened any other way. I'm just not saying, I'm just saying that's not, I don't want to put that out there as advice, but that's the honest um, account of my situation. That's what I went through and what I did for what it's worth. So, um, yeah, it was an hard road that, but just winding back again, producer comes in, he's like, okay, we need to talk about credits. I was like, yep, fine. I remember I'm sat at my computer and he's like, okay, we need to talk about credits. Um, I've got you as, I can't remember what it was, the original thing. There's a VFX, it's a VFX thing, and it's like, okay, what about um, all the other stuff I was doing? He's like, okay, what about concept artist? And it's like, okay, um, you're doing a lot of the production design too, those things overlap a lot, but I'm not the production designer because the insurance company, like the Bond, they would have never signed off on some new guy coming in, no matter who he is. I was basically doing the work, but didn't have the credit, and there was loads of stuff like that. And I just said to the producer, I was like, why don't you just put my proper credits in? And he said, well, we're not, we can't do that. We're not going to do it because I was like, why not? And he's like, well, there's like 17 or 18 credits. And he said, we're not doing that because we're worried it'll look like a student movie and we want people to take it seriously. And I was like, well, it's just stuff I did. Like, what's the problem with that? 
So they said, basically, we had a chat about it. And I was like, well, what are we going to do then? It's like, oh, you know, I'm just busy working. It's like, don't have to do that big a deal. I wasn't really thinking about it in the broader sense. I was just like, what, what should it be? I don't know. So what they did was I've got a weird credit on there called production concept, which means nothing and slipped me out of all categories. But the idea was it spans concept art and production design. So what they've done is just made up some bollocks credit that means nothing because it isn't either, even though I did all that work. Do you know what I mean? So that was like, with retrospect, that was just a complete load of arse. But at the time, we're just like cracking on with it. And no, you know what I mean? It's like, who knows? It's, we just got to get this film finished. Nobody might like it anyway. Probably doesn't even matter. So yeah, that, so basically, I mean, I was doing stunts on the film and all sorts of stuff. Like when you see a stuntman, when you see an astronaut and you can't see his face, that's me in the suit. You know, and he doesn't look like there's much in the way of stunts in Moon, right? It's not like a big stunt-heavy film, right? Nothing explodes, no cars crash. Well, one car crashes a little bit. But um, when you see the rig that we had to create to film just getting in and out of the rover cab, because I was stupid and designed those cabs with a top hatch, that's what it was. So... When we were shooting that stuff, you know, when you're filming, you put all the kind of stuff that's like, all the like for like stuff goes together. So as it turned out in Moon, we had the rover crash scene. And that was when we had an interior rover cab cockpit, because it was like a wooden shed that was on a big mechanical gimbal. And that all shook around when you moved it. And that was all the Sam inside driving stuff. And then when we shot all that stuff out, when we were done with that, we had a separate bit of the set, which was on the floor which was the roof of the rover. And that was used at the very beginning scene where he goes for a drive and he docks with the harvester and the rover goes inside and he gets out and he grabs the canister and we just see him working, basically. That rover cab from that scene, it's the only time we saw it in its original context. That was just on the floor of the studio. So what, what happened was when we were doing the in and out stuff, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're out of money. We can't afford to build another version of that. Let's grab that thing off the floor, put it on top of the rover and fig and make a continuous in and out set from certain angles that will work. So we had to take and the measurements were wrong. So we had to like try and jam this thing on. And to do it, it became about six inches thick because it was right up off the top. So that hatch that you lower down that I that you have to go through was like really high. Now that hatch was a round metal ring, about what's this, 18 inches across? And the only way in and out of the rover was, like in the movie, in the, in the story, is to open the top hatch and go in or out, up or down, right? So what that means in filming sense is the spacesuit itself was, it's kind of what you would expect from a, a having no money, right? We had no money for, we had no money for anything basically on them. Um, the spacesuit was, it was made out of a, a duvet, you know, like a comfort, like a double double thickness duvet. We had snowboard boots on the feet. Uh, I think it was, was it cricket gloves? I can't remember what the gloves were. They might've been cricket. There's some kind of sports glove on the hands. Um, the helmet was custom. Bill Pearson put that together. Yeah, RIP Bill Pearson. We lost him a, a few months back. Yeah, got a shout out to Bill Pearson's legacy. That guy's a, that guy's a dude. Um, but the space suit was basically, I don't know if you know, might've never worn a space suit, but this one was two pieces, right? So it's got a big yoke around the neck that has got hooks on the shoulders, just gravity kind of rests it on you. Backpack uh, attached to the back of it. 
and then the helmet itself comes down and like connected with like mag like strong neodymium magnets that were like hidden in the seal. Now, when you've got the yoke on your helmet, you've basically got it's almost like you're inside like a, a trash bin, and you've kind of lowered it over your head. So if you imagine having that over your head and looking down at your feet, like you can't see your feet because you've just got this big ring of plastic in front of you. So it's like you're wearing that. When you've got the helmet on, it's got fans in, but the whole thing fogs up straight away. Fans are useless. Sam's been sweating in it for like three weeks, so it stinks. No offense, Sam. Anyone would make that suit stink. It was probably a lot worse after it came off my body than it was when it came off his. But uh, the because uh, the weird thing was, I was like the same height and build as Sam, so it was like, we don't have a stuntman. And Doug was like, do you want to do it? I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm getting that suit on. <laughs> fuck yeah, I'm being a spaceman today. So, but the, the gist of it with that suit is that to do the in and outs, um, we started with the stuff after the crash, which is where the, the rover was at like a sort of a 10 degree or so angle. In the movie, it goes under the harvester, right? And it ends up at an angle. Now, just to talk you through what I had to do, because it doesn't really sound like much of a stunt. Basically, I had to go up about 25, 30 feet of decking with no harness, wearing the suit, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't really hear anything. And people were shouting things to me. And I couldn't really hear. So they might have been shouting, no, no, don't step there. Or they might have been shouting, everything's completely fine. Please continue. And I won't know which one of those were. So I was moving slowly, right? And trusting myself. And having a really good look at everything before we actually started rolling. So I knew where everything was. Because I had to step off the deck onto the the top of the rover and again me being stupid when I designed this thing it's got all this tech on top of it so what that translates to on the physical set is a whole bunch of like boxes and pipes that I can just trip on because I can't feel my feet the rover's at an angle and it was covered in cement dust because it was lunar soil right so it was really slippery it was like just matte paint with cement dust sprinkled on it was super slippery and I had to walk over this thing and then I had to lower myself down this hole backwards without being out of sea without knocking anything. So if I touched the backpack, it would just ride up. And I had to do it all smoothly and nicely. And I had to do that again and again and again and again and again without falling or killing myself. Because if I fell, it would have been like 25 feet onto the studio floor. It would have, it would have, it would have been a trip to the hospital for sure. You know, if not a, a bad phone call from my mum, you know, it would have, it would have been a bad day, but I did it. So that was just an example of like one stunt that I had to do. So, you know, and it, but I mean, God damn it, I'm there tomorrow for that shit. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I have no regrets at all. I mean, looking back at it now, I was like the disposable uninsured guy. I was like the human crash test dummy. But this is what, what you get into with some of the shit sometimes, right? <laughs> what are you going to do? I'll be a space man. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. But that all loops back into the whole credit thing, which is like, you know, so much of the VFX was all done by Cinesci. I was doing all kinds of stuff, but there was all kinds of other things being done. So, yeah, the credits for Moon are all over the place. I have to say right now that we've interviewed a lot of really great guests and they've been really interesting people and they've given us really great answers. I think that those two back to back might have been my favorite answers we've ever gotten and just i mean just to start an interview like that i want to thank you because honestly just the insight you've given us and like how interesting those stories are amazing i can't wait to share this with the <laughs> audience already it's amazing and i didn't die how cool is that 
That's that's my favorite part. Managed to not die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank God for that. Because then we wouldn't have gotten archived. Yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect segue, because I was gonna say, you know, we did we did talk about Duncan films at the beginning, and I did say that archives one of them. Moon is also one of them, and I love both them, but we did want to ask some specifics about archive and getting that made now that obviously you've talked about working with Duncan in the past, but this one you wrote and directed yourself. Yeah. So if we could, could we segue into some questions about that process and maybe some of the parallels as well, because I know that I saw some things where I was like, oh, wow, that's the set design type, for example. Like, I think that like some of the, the robots looked like they could, they would fit in, in the moon world, for example. So um, I, I see like some parallels um, like in, in that, but um, I'd love to get into a little bit of the production um, and your how, how that looked like for you on Archive. Yeah, go for it. Um, I like the way you picked up on the robots. I mean, I was intending to basically make Gertie's cousins, basically. I love robots in film, right? And to be able to create those characters and then design them and then realize them and then have them in movies that are out there, so much fun. And people love when you have a good, I mean, Gertie's one of them for sure, but when you have a good robot, I was telling Gardner before this that I was pretty much in love with the archive robots, not like in a romantic way, but in a character way where, you know, you fall in love with characters in films and there's so endearing all of them. Uh, and we'll touch on how you did that. But I wanted to start by, was it daunting to go from writing and directing? You had done a short film before this but you hadn't done a feature film and you had obviously worked on a feature film and you'd worked with Duncan before, but was it daunting to go in then do, and this is all you now and it's uh, kind of on your back now? Well, no, not at all. And the main reason why it wasn't daunting was because of my amazing producer, Phil Hurd. Like we're a team, like me and Phil are a team. Basically when you, when you go into a movie, right? Definitely with my experience, like I've done a, I've done like a, most of my movie, experience to this point is indie stuff right and you basically you go in there as a writer director you basically get your producers basically your wife that's the kind of relationship you've got you're like totally having those you know you know like the kind of husband and wife conversations that might come up over the course of the marriage that's the relationship between a writer director and a producer doing an indie film you know, and it's like you two against the world, but sometimes there'll be a domestic. <laughs> and it's about having that relationship where you can, you know, if you go through that and, you, and your relationship survives and the work's good, you get to a point where you've got this amazing friend and ally that you can have these complete, you can say anything to them. And you can just have these, what some people on the outside would look at you and might think you're having some kind of a blazing row and you're not at all. And as soon as you've, you've rationalized it and finished, you'd be like, all right, I'm going to the bar. Do you want another pint? Yep, cool. All done. I love it. And talking about the screenplay and you being the writer, you mentioned before that you have this idea for right that low-budget $10,000 film that maybe one day will get made. I've got my fingers crossed for it. I think that a lot of times those lower-budget films end up bringing a lot out in filmmakers. So I would think that would be fun to do. But what about this one? What was the genesis of this screenplay and getting that made? Oh, man. I should just point out, actually, because Archive came out in 2020, right? Now, it took me a long time to get this together. The whole thing was basically put together. The story was put together in 2011. 
it was a little bit frustrating because it I it took me a long time because I didn't set I set out to um hang on I'll just tell you the story what happened it'll make sense I'll have to go a bit quick because I could really labor on this because quite a lot happened the whole thing started the genesis of it was me cleaning my apartment uh one Sunday spring clean hated it had to do it place is a mess and I had two computers that were both fired up at the time. And, you know, when you're doing freelance work, your computer's like your life, right? It's your, all your work lives on it, all your creative stuff, whatever you're trying to do next is all on there. It's your archive of everything you've done up till now. It's your tools that you use to do your work. It's like all these things, right? It's a really important thing. Something weird happened with the power. The power fritz is out, everything goes off. Both my computers were toast. Never found out what happened. But when the power came back on, neither of my computers would start. All the hard drives were knackered. It was really, really bad. So, and it was Sunday, it was Sunday afternoon. I couldn't do anything about it. And I had to finish tidying up because my apartment was a mess. And so that was like one of the worst like Sunday evenings I've ever had because I was really worried, really angry, and just fed up and had to I had to spend a lot of time tidying up the house. And I was really worried about these computers because, like, they're not coming back on. And it's like, it might be a power supply. You know, fixing computers is a whole dark art, right? Turned out, the whole thing was just, like, completely blown to bits. I managed to recover some data from my hard drive, but neither of those two machines ever booted up again. And it was horrible. And I, the idea for Archive was born, <clears throat> excuse me, on that evening where I had to finish charging up and I was so pissed off. And I felt like, my computers had killed themselves on purpose to spite me. That was where my brain was. I was in a dark place. And I was just stewing all night. And I was at the time, I was having conversations with... Because um, when Moon came out in 2009, I, you know, it, it registered with people. It was really great. People really took the film to the hearts. Like, right from the release of Sundance, it was really, really lovely how everybody reacted to the film. Because we didn't know if anyone was going to release it or not. I remember when we were shooting, there was a point where Sam was doing this thing and, you know, we were literally filming and um, me and Duncan were just stood at the side and he sort of whispered over to me and he goes, like, we were literally rolling, like Sam's like acting, everyone's being quiet and Duncan goes, uh, is this any good? And I was like, what? what? And he goes, this whole thing, like, this is literally what happened. He goes, is this any good? And I was like, He's having like a little a little wobble moment, and it's like I've got to try and chill him out a little bit because not a good time. And also, I'm I'm really bad at lying and bullshit, and I just can't do it. I have to be honest with people because it's just it's just it's the best way. And I said to him, I goes, look, honestly, I don't know. Like we're both here right now. We're in the moment. We've got no peripheral vision. We're just here looking at this like laser vision on this moment. We're not seeing all the stuff around us, and it's not going to be clear to us for a little while. Um, so honestly, I don't know, but we're trying as hard as we can here. That's one thing I can say, like throughout this whole thing, we've been trying as hard as we can, still trying as hard as we can, and we'll keep doing that. So if it turns out that this thing isn't good, it won't be because we haven't tried as hard as we can. And ultimately, beyond that, what are you going to do? Do you know what I mean? So at the end of the day, there's no reason why we can't sleep at night. We're not we're not asking about, we're not shortchanging anybody, we're not shortcutting it. We're just, we're here, we're working as hard as we can, trying to do it as good as we can. And that's all I can tell you right now.
but that whole thing really stayed with me that conversation because it was a kind of a strange little impromptu conversation um <clears throat> so um rolling that back to yeah to archive so what happened was yeah i felt like my computers had killed themselves and thinking about it i really i sort of came to realize that oh yeah okay so what was what was happening with after moon uh it sort of reinvigorated um the indie space definitely in the uk and the kind of our locality and lots of directors were writing two million three million pound sci-fi movies and they were trying to basically do moon again and uh these people were all coming to me and you know saying can you do what you did for moon in my movie and you know i'm reading the scripts and stuff and i'm just like you know honestly i'm not get i'm not about getting paid 15 grand again for the next two years work literally working till i'm feel like i'm gonna die i'm falling asleep in my car at traffic lights you know i'm all getting in debt all this stuff it's like no i'm not gonna do that again <laughs> i'm burnt out i need to chill i need to figure out what i'm gonna do with my life do you know what i mean so I got all that stuff going on, but all these scripts were coming in and it was like, can you do it? Can you do it again? Can you do it again? Can you do it again? And it was all like indie directors I'd never heard of who had scripts that I just wasn't. I've got, I had this kind of deal with myself where I will work until I'm probably about to die, but I have to feel like it's going to be something awesome. It's the only reason why I'll do it. I'll do it, but it's got to be all. I'm not going to do that for anything. I've got to feel it. I've got to buy it. Do you know what I mean? And consequently, you know, if I'm not feeling that, energy about the material i'm I, I shouldn't do something because i'm not going to put everything into it so i was getting all these film all these scripts through and it, i got pulled into a couple of conversations with production companies who were like um what basically what happened was i was getting these scripts through and be, just being polite when i was like passing on things i was kind of saying like would you like me to explain what i'm saying because i don't want to look like a dick and say oh i don't think i'll be doing your script it's like i read it i considered it and there's some things about it that i can talk about if you like to con give me some context so i got into a few conversations and i was basically like critiquing scripts and a couple of them were like had good ideas but scripts weren't that well executed in my opinion and i was saying like i think it'd be a lot cooler if you did this and did that and did that and so I got pulled into conversations about development and they were like, well, do you want to develop this? And I was like, it's mm, not really, not really my sort of thing, which put me into, because, you know, it's, it's difficult. Like when you're doing that creative pro, when somebody's written a script, it comes from something that they really like. And to just come in as a stranger and just go, no, big red pen, big red pen. I'm going to take this now. It's hard to do that without pissing somebody off down the line. Do you know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't like it if someone did it to me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody else would. I mean, you know, it's it's just not a great start to a creative relationship, you know. So I was reluctant to sort of get into that kind of thing, really. But what happened then was the conversations turned to, well, have you got any ideas you want to develop? So I had a couple of open conversations like that that led all the way back from Moon. Um, and they were just kind of like rolling on with like occasional emails and cups of coffee and stuff. And then when my um, computers went and died, I was like, hey, it'd be really cool if um, the computer, all it really wanted to do was kill itself. That's like a cool idea. It's like a kind of a bit of a Philip K. Dick idea. What if a computer wants to die? So that then quickly became like, okay, what if a guy's building a computer, like an AI, like a human equivalent intelligence, and when he turns it on, it just kills itself. And so he's trying to keep it, switched on and alive long enough to find out why it wants to die and i was like that's the germ of an idea i like that and this is all in that evening where i was pissed off all this 
all these thoughts kind of metastasized really quickly into this idea about somebody trying to build an AI equivalent machine that all it wanted to do was die. And I mean, that's just where my head was at the time. You know, I, was, I wasn't having a great day. But that German of an idea eventually went straight through into archive. So it only took me about um, like six weeks and I had the whole story worked out. But this is back in 2011. And one thing that was frustrating was my like my whole um I was in a I was in a good position because I had production companies that were interested in working with me. I had an idea that people were getting you know, getting some energy. And I'd never written anything before. And so I'd always been an ideas guy. And me and Duncan were always just chucking ideas and stuff. It's like, you know, I like outlined the moon right at the beginning. You know, it's like not in any formal sense, but I did it. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's just totally just conversation at the time it was just conversations. It was like, okay, we've got a guy, it's gonna have to look like an old school movie because we can't compete with the current movies like Transformers. No worries. I grew up reading Cinefix magazine. They're like a practical set. We use miniatures when you're handsome with CG, they look great. You need a story about a guy who's stuck somewhere by himself, spaceship, moon base, satellite, whatever. He needs a robot buddy, he needs some kind of car that he drives around in for his job. It's all those things that those old movies had. Just make a laundry list of them. And that was the the original, let's use these constraints to make a movie. That was how the moon story came together. And it was me just looking at movies like Outland, The Silent Running, and Alien, like my, you know, my sort of shelf of like wonderful vintage hits. Um, and it was just like, okay, we'll just, you know, it needs to fit with this stuff. So I know the aesthetics, I can design this stuff, it'll look great. It'll be physical sets, it's not gonna look weird or wrong. We just need enough money to build a decent size set. And then we'll just set the whole film in it, pretty much. Um, it worked. So, yeah, my whole plan with um, Archive was I've never written anything before. Like, I've never written a script. So I already do all kinds of art, right? I do concept art, I do graphic design, motion graphics, animatics, like storyboarding, visual effects work, um, all sorts, of, like right across the board. And I, I felt like I was being presumptuous to just undertake a whole new discipline like writing, right? There are writers and that's their whole jam. Like they write, that's their whole thing. They spend all the time doing it. It, takes them a, it can take them a whole, their whole lifetime to get really good at it. It's a vocation, like there's always more to learn. You can always get better. Um, so I thought I was being very presumptuous to just stroll into, thinking I could just stroll into a whole new art form and be okay. I was like, I need to stay away from that shit. I need to work with a writer. I've got ideas. I'm going to outline what I want the movie to be. I'm going to team up with a writer. They can give me a script. We can just go out and have cups of coffee all day and I'll just write down loads of notes what I want it to be. They can give me a script, get the movie done. And I spent like about five and a half years working with like three different writers and just didn't get, didn't get, didn't get anything. And so in the end, I'd written, I spent so much time trying to explain to them what I wanted that I had like a 47 page treatment. And, you know, there's a rule in screenwriting, right, where a page of writing is basically a minute of screen time. So your script should be about 95 or 100 minutes. And that's like your hour and hour and 40 minute movie. So that's, you know, I basically all I had to do was join it all up and format it. And there's a whole chunks of conversation in there. I basically got it here. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to write it myself until I can find someone better. Um, and I still have that deal with myself. But yeah, two weeks later, I had my script. The annoying thing was this whole process took such a long time that along the way, like Ex Machina came out, Black Mirror came out, and it's like, great, cool, 
kind of pisses me off. <laughs> I had all that shit fresh out of the oven in 2011 and it just took me until 2020 to actually drop my movie. But no regrets. I got a movie out during the pandemic. I mean, a lot of people didn't. You know, I've got nothing to moan about. So you said that you worked with uh, multiple different writers before you decided to just screw it. I'm just going to write it myself. Was there ever a point where you thought maybe you'd want someone else to direct it after going through the process of moon and having Duncan lean over to you and be like, is this even any good? Um, or was that just always your plan? No, never for one second. The whole point of it was for me to make, make my own movie. That's awesome. I didn't even think, I don't, not even the slightest hair of a glimmer crossed my mind. I would have killed somebody before that happened. <laughs> I love that attitude. I love it. What would you say is was the most challenging part of getting this film made once you did have the script and you were like, okay, we need to go. Was it was it pre-production? Was it when you were on set? Was it the editing? No, it was post-production, man. It was horrible. And this is me as the post VFX guy. I thought post-production would be a breeze. But it wasn't. It was an absolute nightmare. It nearly took the movie down. We got it done in the end. I had to do a load of VFX myself at home. It's fine. It's, it's, it's just me doing what I always did. It's like, there's a problem. It needs fixing. I'm just going to get it done. So I'm just getting all that. It, it was, VFX was really hard with Archive. Um, it was ambitious, a really ambitious film. And it was just, we were working at the limits of everything the whole way through. You know, it was like a three million pound film. You know, and it's like one of the nicest things that people say about archive is that it looks like it costs more money than that because, you know, it's always a great compliment. It's like, and we had the same thing with Moon that people said that Moon looked more expensive than it was, which was really cool to hear. But it's just all the sweat and the effort. That's what you see in. I mean, it helps with me as well because so much of it can kind of come out of my head. Like I'm not relying on other people and I know how to work quickly, you know, so things like doing graphic design and stuff like these, I've got some of my drawers here, these little decals here from archive, you know, stuff like that. I remember, because we shot the movie in Hungary and I'd already done a bunch of this stuff, but I'd stay in my hotel room just doing bits of graphic design that we needed for the set that were gonna go on the walls. And I'd be up to like two or three in the morning just and then handing them over to the um, art director to get them printed and stuff next morning. And I remember the um, when the line producer found out, she got really worried about me. And she was like, Mike, you don't have to do all this. We can get someone to do it. And I was like, this is relaxing for me. This is me chilling out, doing some lovely graphic design at night. It's like super chill. I'm in my hotel room by myself. I'll just get some music going. I'll just push a bunch of pixels around, be in my own little world. And then the next day, it's going to go on the wall and it's going to look fucking great. Everything's fine. So just to jump quickly back to the writing process because i part of what makes a duncan movie is i love a twist and i love sci-fi as well so a sci-fi twist is something that gets me going for sure can you did you know there was going to be a twist early on or is that something that was hard to write into it no i was looking for the twist right at the beginning pretty much as soon as i had the idea and the setup i wanted to know how it was going to pay off it's just the way that i kind of uh, one of the things I've noticed is that maybe it comes from not not having anyone teach me how to write, but when I actually put stories together, I kind of use a lot of my design philosophy, like with graphic design, to actually make a story. Like I actually design stories rather than write. You know, I know a lot of writers, like they'll start page one and it's like, oh, they'll have an idea for a character and they'll just start writing. 
I can't do that. I've tried it just as an experiment. I hate it. It feels really uncomfortable. I mean, I was writing the, the um, I did an experiment with it, with the, uh, the Last Man, which was a short film that I put up on YouTube. I tried that as an experiment with that and I got 60 pages in and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to wrap this up. And it was fun to read, but then it just sort of stopped. And I was like, I don't know what the cool thing to do next is. Like, I've spiraled myself into this place and I've got to explain what all this stuff was. That was basically what I was doing because it was like a little experiment. I was doing a whole bunch of, um, remember Lost? Remember the TV show Lost? You know how all that mystery was just a, lo a load of bollocks, right? And none of it meant anything. I was doing that. I was putting all these crazy things in it. It was like, it'd be fun to watch it. You'd be like, oh, what's this? What's that? None of it paid off because I was just making it up as I went along. <clears throat> Excuse me. So like I said, that was just an experiment that I did one time when I was on, I did that when I was on the holiday. I just kind of wrote it on my um, uh, parent-in-law's deck, um, which was actually really nice, watching whales in the Australian Ocean. It was pretty awesome, actually. But yeah, the, uh, yeah, when I write, I like to know where it's going. So right now I've got like three stories that I'm writing at the moment. I know where they all finish. I know where they all start. And then I get to kind of have a, you know, craft out a nice ride in the middle. But, you know, I'm always trying to figure out better ways of writing and quicker ways of writing too. Because I have a, I have a, a really, uh, a good friend of mine, Mike Johnson, he wrote the um, Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movie uh, back in, was it 20, when was that? 2007 or something when that was? Uh, Mike's Mike's awesome. I remember him telling me because I got quite a bit of advice off him early on when I decided I was going to give it a go. And he said, like the most important, this is like one of the best tips I ever had from writing actually from Mike. He said, what you really need to do is give yourself two weeks to forget it. So he says, whenever you whenever you write something, you always think it's just how you want it, but you need two weeks to forget it and come back and read it cold. It's funny because like I've actually come up with this phrase that I use now. I mean, I only use it on productions because it's the only time it's really relevant when I try and explain it to people, but cold brain energy, which is when you have the ability to read something cold because you only get that for a moment, right? Like there's a brief window when you get cold brain energy and then your brain warms up again and you lose that cold read. So it's important. And and that that cold read on things that you're, that you're doing yourself is difficult to factor into an industrial thing because like when do you get break periods you know what i mean when you when you when you're on a production and it's moving you don't really get those break periods so i mean it, it's a bit more helpful with what i do because i do all these different things i can get involved in other things and really immerse myself in them at like a deep level and kind of try and let things drop out a little bit but yeah cold brain energy is important and you just mentioned briefly, which is a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you. Um, you said you were, you had about three scripts you're working on writing right now. Is there any tease you can give us on uh, what's next for you? What can I say without getting in trouble? Hang on. These are, these are difficult questions because I just want to tell you everything I'm doing. because I'm into it and I think it's cool. Uh, but no, um, one thing I will say is that we are with Archive. I mean... Archive's a pretty complete experience when you watch it, right? But it's actually, the Archive is actually half of the story. It's a very self-contained half that feels complete, so I never knew if I'd get to do the second half. But there is another half of that story which completes the entirety, and it's much more than the first movie was. So that's being worked up at the moment. That's a tease right there. All right, playing it close to the chest. I like it, I like it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, hopefully I'll get to do this. So I've got that. 
There's another thing that I'm writing, which is a story that I'm really enjoying about. Oh, I don't want to tell you what it is. I'll give you three words, all right? I don't know if this thing's ever going to get to the end of them, but it's what I'm trying to do. Okay, three words. I'll take three words. Space Cannibal Maniacs. And it's a serious contemplative sci-fi film about Space Cannibal Maniacs. I know that sounds strange. If I get to do this at some point in the future, drop me an email, we'll have another chat, and I'll make com- everything I've said now will make complete sense. And it's not goofy or stupid. I promise. <laughs> I mean, I'm sold. I believe you and trust us that we will be in contact with you if we when we hear about it. <laughs> and there's a there's another another thing that I'm doing which I'm I really can't tell you anything about because that's a super exciting one and that hopefully that'll be something at a, a decent scale. But what I will say is it's got a robot in there that I am really, really fond of and I can't wait to bring to the big screen and I hope I get a chance to do it. I have a robot called Clyde who is just, I, I can't wait. Clyde, look, I've actually got goosebumps talking about Clyde. Clyde is my new robot squeeze. I love it. I love all the teases. I am excited. We are going to be watching along with bated breath because I'm excited. And I know our audience is going to be excited too. Consider me titillated. Yeah, right? <laughs> it just takes such a long time to get these things done. I mean, everything I'm talking about right now is still at treatment stage. But what I'm finding is the way that everybody seems to like working these days is you can spend two years, three years on a treatment. And then as soon as everybody's good, three months later, you've got a script. And the treatment is also used to attach cast. So all these things can happen. If you've got a good production company and a real good page turner treatment, that unlocks everything. And it can all kind of, all the dominoes can go down really quick after that. Actually, do you know what? That's another tip I'd give. Um, to any aspiring um, writers, writer directors out there, don't spend all your time on scripts. Spend your time on treatments, because you can write five treatments for every every script, probably. Well, depending on how you are and how you work. And a production company, if you've got a really good treatment, they'll give that as much regard as a really good script. Wow, I didn't know that. And I mean, you've been giving us great tips the entire time, but I did not, I did not know that, and I will keep that in mind. Well, I mean, if you want to be a writer, that's a bit different. If your jam is writing scripts, that's different. But if you're a filmmaker and you want to be a writer, personally, my big tip, yeah, would be going there with really nice treatments. And the thing is about treatments, right? <clears throat> They're such an important document because it's your kind of easy read. And it's like, I remember when I first started writing a treatment, it was, it was probably one of the most intimidating artistic jobs I've ever done was writing the treatment for archive. Because I've never done it. I didn't know what, I know what a treatment does but I said, what is a treatment so i went and did a lot of r&d trying to figure it out hey there's, there's documents out there from the making of all these films that we all know and love i was like okay let's have a look what did james cameron write for terminator what was his treatment of terminator oh my god it's like a hundred page phone book okay uh you know what was the treatment for i don't know interstellar oh it's like a, you know i actually don't know what interstellar one was but i remember looking at some i can't remember which movies they were for they were about three pages and then I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, um, you know, what's the accepted way of doing things. There isn't one. What you do have to do is hold people's attention. So if you're James Cameron, anybody will sit down and read 100 pages. Mind you, this is a Terminator. This is like back in the day, right? This is early James Cameron. This is like, I mean, it dropped, Terminator came out in 84. So they were been ill-written that in 81, 82, something like that. So, you know, maybe it was more of a trick getting to, re- you know, getting someone to read his stuff back then. 
But either way, it all worked out nicely for him. But what I do <clears throat> is I write two treatments. I write a treatment for me, and then I write a treatment as a kind of, I know you're really busy. Could you give this like 10 minutes of your time, please? So I have like two treatments. One of them is like an overview treatment that's like two pages long, page and a half, two pages long. And then it's like, if you like that, you can read the proper treatment, which might be, it's like whatever, it's like all bets are off. It's just the way I do it personally. You don't have to work like this, but I just find it's good to get people's brains involved, basically. Because one of those things where if if you, your documents will, your documents need to be able to live without you being in the room, right? So what I mean by that is they get passed around. <clears throat> so for example, um, if your treatment gets some heat, it might be given to an agent and an agency. Well, it will be because the production company will be like, okay, we've got to cast this. And they'll be, they'll fling it out there. And the way the agencies work are, they have a bunch of agents that work in a big building and each one of those agents has got a whole bunch of separate clients. So you're kind of forking like a family tree and your documents kind of coming through this family tree and kind of filtering through it all. So you need documents that stand on their own without you being in the room to explain anything. And this is why a short snappy one's great if you've got like a real killer idea and you can sum it all up in like a page and a half. That's an easy one because the agents can just send it out to people and they can just read it almost by accident by opening an email if it's like that concise and it's good. And then once you've got bite, you can kind of pull them in a bit further. Another thing too, actually, that I wouldn't shy away from is, is customizing documents for people. You know, if you've got certain, I don't know, I mean, I guess this is more when you're talking to cast and stuff, but you know, I wouldn't shy away from, if you know there's a certain angle you can take or you can reach somebody, I wouldn't, don't shy away from doing an extra bit of work and just customizing a document to just really hit the point how you want it to hit. Well, I really appreciate all the advice. I know our audience is going to appreciate it. I myself am trying to, I'm in the middle of shooting a short film that I wrote right now. So I'm going to be thinking about these. I have ideas that I want to turn into feature length scripts, but obviously making a short film is a lot easier and more um not easier in the sense of like getting a film it's just it's hard it, it takes more production They're different battles it's all it's yeah all, it's all yeah it's all the grind but i love it right and i really i seriously i appreciate it i am having so much fun doing it like hearing you talk about how you're excited about your future projects is exactly how i feel right now as i'm working with my actors and my co-director and stuff like that it's so much fun cool man that's awesome yeah but I know our audience is going to appreciate everything you've said today. It's really, I mean, the advice is great. The insights into your past work is phenomenal. I could tell you so much stuff, honestly. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we love it. We, we seriously, I mean, like the, 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 the broader stuff and then drilling down into some of the more specific, cool, like smaller stories and like stuff like that really just brilliant stuff and like awesome to, to learn about it because again like these are like it's behind the scenes of movies that we both love i know again gardner i'm not trying to speak for you but i do know that you do love them so i'm going to speak for you on that on that one speak away yeah it's um it's a fun career you know if you well, the way i'd kind of sum it up really is like film's not for everybody right there are some people that might feel like they they pull towards it and they want to do it it's not for everybody and you know you sort of learn that when you start getting into it. Like, you know, you're going to, I mean, I heard this thing before about, um, I forget where I heard this. I've heard it from a few different people at like versions of this. And it's about when you, when you're making a film, it's like, it feels like the most important thing ever. Like it feels like 
if you don't get this thing made, like you're gonna die or something. Like it feels, it's like it has to happen. Like you have to do it. It has to happen. And I've heard this from like all kinds of people have said versions of that. And I think once you start making things, if you feel like that, and if you if you understand, you know, if you, yeah, you'll you'll either know what I'm talking about or you won't. And if you do know what I'm talking about, then you know, congratulations. It's for you. But um, I always find that there's two types of work, like just generally working when, I mean, you know, going back to what I was saying before about having more than one job, like there are different types of work. And I'm sure that we've all had experience in industry and all different kind of like, you know, I used to work on building sites and stuff. Like whilst I was at university, that was my kind of summer job and whatnot. We've all done all kinds of things, I'm sure. There's two types of work in my mind, right? There's work where when you do it, it's tiring it, you know it leaves you at the end of the day like sort of knackered and just you know the more you do it the more tired you get and there's another type of work where the more you do it and the harder you do it the more fired up you get and the work energizes you I think if you feel like that about any aspect of product well I mean anything in life really then you know that you found something that's for you but that's how I feel about particularly filmmaking but you know I get to I get to use all the different parts of me I mean, the thing about film particularly that I find really appealing was I spent quite a bit of time trying to think about it. There's lots of different art forms, right? And films often, it's definitely up there. It's kind of regarded as being, you know, one of the sort of higher art forms and harder art forms. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. And where I kind of ended up with my thinking was that art, um, sorry, filmmaking encompasses so many other art forms. It's like most of them. Like you've got writing, you've got photography, you've got performance, like theatre, you know, you've got things like concept design, you've got music, like editing, you've got all these different art forms and they all have to come together on a point. And one of the things that I enjoy about it so much is that I get to use all the different parts of me, like all the different things that I do, like all my ideas, I get to, you know, I get to work with like really skilled people, I get to do my own concept art, my own graphic design, you know, I get to getting there in the edit and stuff like i get to do all this stuff it's just super cool nothing like it so again we do want to thank you for taking the time today i know it's a little bit late for you i am sleeping so hard after this honestly (laughs) i'm gonna be like a tree falling over when we're done (laughs) yeah we uh we our audience is used to us talking to people from all around the world so a lot of times someone is tired so this time unfortunately it was our guest, so we do apologize to you for that, but thank you. Full disclosure, in pajamas. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So to wrap up, we do have um, just the one final question, which we like to ask all of our guests, which is, is there an- another filmmaker, maybe an independent filmmaker, maybe someone who doesn't get enough shine that you would like to shout out for our audience and for us too, to check out their work? Oh, all right. I'm not picking one. I'm going to mention a couple, okay? Just because. Um, we've already talked about coherence, okay? So we got, uh, I always mispronounce his name. We've got James Ward Burkitt. I hope I'm not uh, butchering your name, James, if you hear this. Coherence, genius masterpiece. I mean, super fun. I actually watched it about, about a week ago again, like rewatched it. It's one of those movies where I have to rewatch it every six months. It's just, it lives in my head. Like, good movies live on in your head, right? So definitely shout out um, Mr. Burkitt. Ari Aster's big one for me. Uh, Midsummer just really, really reached me. I mean, 
it was like a midnight movie or something. It just it it really it really reached me. And I really, really want Ari Aster to make a sci-fi film. Please, Mr. Aster, if you are hearing this, just whatever it is that appeals to you about sci-fi, if there's anything that you like about it, please just lean into that and make a film about it, because I am there. But my all right, my my actual answer, I guess, if I was picking one person, would be Corey Maccabee. Again, hopefully, Corey, I'm pronouncing your name right. I saw The American Astronaut a few years back, and I just loved that movie. It was such a fun watch. I mean, I always like music in film. And, I mean, okay, just if you don't know who uh, Corey Maccabee is, you've not heard of The American Astronaut. It's a black and white. It's basically like a musical, because, like, Corey does a lot of... Um, he's like a singer-songwriter as well as an actor and a writer. He's a very, you know, he's a... He's a force basically and i just i just find his his tone that he brings to things lovely like he's got a real warmth to his work that i really love he did a like it was like a web series called stingray sam i i'm not sure whether how widely that got released i actually bought it off his website and downloaded it i actually yeah i actually got that off his website but stingray sam's about a couple of mercenaries trying to get a little girl home and it's just Again, it's all shot in black and white. It's very much a companion to the American astronaut. And it's just it's just one of the sweetest... It's got these sweet moments of these two... He kind of becomes like a dad to this little girl and just gets her home. It's just so sweet. I mean, when I was watching that, like, I have a little girl myself who's, like, eight now. But when I watched Stingray Sam, I think the little girl's about four in that. She was about... The, she was the same age as mine. And she did this... There's a scene where he sings her to bed. He sings her a lullaby... And she's got like a, a dress on over like a little lumberjack shirt and like cute warm clothes. She's got like a, a little like cute like Elsa from Frozen dress over it. And it was kind of how mine was dressing at the time. And I just, it really reached me. But yeah, I'm getting all soft now. But yeah, Corey Maccabee, you, you reach into my heart and tug the strings <laughs> with your sensibilities. And the, oh my God, the, um, the Hey Boy song from American Astronaut. That's been my wake-up alarm on my phone since I first heard that, and that must be, God, what, I don't know, eight or nine years ago now? I just love that song so much. Watching the clip on YouTube, I can just do that any time. And it, it's so weird. You know the thing I'm talking about? You know this clip? No, no, you're, you're introducing me to someone uh, brand new to me right now. It sounds so weird because it's, it's basically like a little clip of a guy going and taking a dump and two guys coming into the washroom behind him, putting a record on, and then singing this weird song when they dance around in front of the cubicle, whilst they're like kicking and thumping on the door, threatening him. So weird. But that's a sci-fi film. <laughs> I love it. I just think it's great. It's got so much personality and charm. Thank you. I, I got to chuck another thing on there too, just because I know you've got a, a wide audience. Just in case you're not aware, we lost uh, Douglas Trumbull. A couple of weeks back, Doug Trumbull was one of the true pioneers. Like he, I mean, that's a, a legit genius. You know, he, he first came to prominence on 2001 A Space Odyssey doing the effects with Kubrick. He was one of the four supervisors on uh, 2001. Very, very quickly got his career right up there. Uh, did the, did Blade Runner, you know, did the all the Mitch work on Blade Runner, supervised that. Close Encounters of Third Kind, all of it. Legit genius. Anyway. He started out, uh, well, not the start of his career, but he directed a movie called Silent Running, 
back in was it 68 or 69 just start running very small film it was by uh, one of the studios game studio they were trying out new filmmakers and they had a pot of six million dollars and they gave each filmmaker one million dollars and doug trumbull was on their list so he got his million dollars and he made silent running and that is a tour de force you might see huey Dewey, and louie behind me where are they i watched that when i was six years old my dad showed it to me and it just it just broke my heart in several places that never went back together and like that movie's always been the special one i mean one of the things that was i was really grateful of with the release of moon was that people um silent running was always like one of my big loves and i was trying to put some of that into moon and people really picked up on the tone of it um that directly links through to my dad showing it to me when i was like six because i could never figure out the robots as a kid i thought they were real i just i couldn't I didn't get it it's like i mean you know using amputees in the in the costumes especially built for them it was just masterful with no money just real genius but um I had a I had a moment when was it 2010? I did some work at an ad agency and we went to the Big Chill Festival in South England. It's like just a music festival. And when we got there, they had a movie tent and there was a double bill playing and it was Silent Running followed by Moon. And I was so my heart was just glowing because I was like, I put Silent Running in that tent. I was so proud because no one was really talking about it at the time and Moon really sort of blew the dust off silent running and got people sort of you know revisiting it again back then so if you haven't seen silent running and you like films like moon and archive and that kind of like sort of slightly slower paced films about a guy living with robots basically check out silent running absolutely that's a lot of new um material for me to check out i, I love the uh the little educational session there thank you so much i'm definitely going to be checking those out 100 percent Cool, man. And let's get a petition going for Ari Aster to make a sci-fi film. Come on, Ari. I'll sign it. I will absolutely sign that. Yeah. Sci-fi horror. We don't get a lot of those movies these days anymore. I'd like to see that. <clears throat> Space Cannibal Maniacs. <clears throat> yes, we're excited. We're already excited for that, I think. Yeah. And just a little note, which is actually kind of funny. Ari Aster is the most, by a long shot, commonly answered director for that question really and i don't i don't think we've ever had someone even be mentioned twice other than (laughs) it's been like four or five now um i remember for example hunter brought him up i think that was like the third uh person who who had mentioned him everyone loves his films and it seems like people who people who make all different types of films themselves all enjoy his films which is interesting it's like people from different film backgrounds all appreciate his films and then i gotta just coherence again literally one of my favorite movies ever when we got to talk to jim it was like it was like it was very big big holy grail moment for me because i had it's probably other than star wars the movie that i've watched the most like you said you have to go back six months every six months to watch coherence it's very similar like i just could watch it over and over again and you know films like moon archive or i've just now seen archive recently for the first time and it's going to be one of those that i watch now i mean i've watched it a couple times in the past week to get ready scratches it scratches that itch yeah yeah i love and like moon moon is always awesome. a good rewatch you know it's just thank you you're welcome okay everybody go and get yourself an archive blu-ray before they're all gone they're selling quick they're going like hotcakes go get them folks better get on amazon right now and order three and make good presents yes you know what? We'll have the link to get that in the podcast description. 
And uh, do you have any socials that you want anyone to follow you on, like Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, you can get me on at Gavrov on Twitter, G-A-V-R-O-V. I got to say, I've been a bit quiet on Twitter recently, because when I get working, I get a bit quiet. But then I'll get a bit of spare time and I'll just shove a bunch of sci-fi art on there. Um, and my Instagram is Daddy Donuts. You'll know it when you find it. It's got a bunch of spare ships up there and robots. God, I need to branch out, don't I? I need to do some more stuff. It's all spaceships and robots. I love it. I, you know, I told you <laughs> it's right up my alley. So I don't need you to change. I'll up. never change. Although, it's yeah, and throw some cannibals in there too. Why not? <laughs> if it ain't broke, <laughs> I'll see what I can do. So yeah, thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll have our audience be looking out for your stuff, and we're going to be looking out for your stuff as well. Yeah. All right. Thank you for putting up with my accent, everybody. I know the the north of England can be a little bit tricky sometimes. So good on you for sticking with it. Go and get go and get yourself a McDonald's. You've earned it. <laughs> <laughs> you know how much Americans love British accents. This might be one of our most listened to. Yeah. We'll see. Seriously, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your evening. I know it's late over there. You're very welcome. Always a pleasure. There you have it, folks. That was our interview with Gavin Rothery. We know you enjoyed it. We want to extend a huge thank you to Gavin for joining us and for giving us one of our best interviews ever. Seriously, guys, how about all that insight? I was not expecting to learn so much about the making of Moon, but I couldn't be happier that I did. Absolutely. That was one of the most informative interviews we've ever done. I really felt like I was in film school. Like I, I was learning a lot throughout that conversation with Gavin. Again, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on the program. Incredible insight. And I personally loved, and I know our listeners will as well, but from a filmmaking standpoint, as someone who's trying to get into the industry, Gavin was just offering up all these brilliant tidbits and, like we were saying, insight. But we didn't even have to ask, like, hey, as a filmmaker, what would you recommend us to be looking into? He, five or six of them, just fired them off at us, which is amazing. Yeah, I wasn't expecting him to just be coming in here and giving away game like that. And I'm so grateful that he did because that is really important stuff. A lot of the stuff he touched on are questions that entry-level filmmakers have and they don't really know how to how to access that information. You know, you don't even know what you don't know. So for him to come in and just tell us frankly right out the gate, all that important information was huge. Since that is the end of the show, we also want to thank our fans. We do appreciate you. Thank you for sticking around to the end. Thank you for continuing to listen. And thank you to all our new listeners as well. Remember, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us anywhere by searching the letters G, D, T. And while you're there, subscribe to us and leave a five-star review. We really appreciate all our five-star reviews, folks. This week, we have a five-star review from Joey Maz saying, Some cool takes on some cool movies. These guys seem cool and have some cool takes. Green Knight slaps. Oh, I really like that one. Little, you know, affirmation right there. Yeah, I figured you would. That guy's on your side. Yeah, a little affirmation for the pod. Love to hear that. Thank you, Joey Maz. So like I said, make sure to leave us one of those and make sure you subscribe so you can follow along with all our episodes. 
This was our full-length episode this week where we interviewed Gavin. Next Wednesday, we will have a bonus episode where we discuss Batman Begins. We're starting a mini-series on the Nolan Batman trilogy, releasing every Wednesday for the next few weeks. And next Friday, we have another episode releasing with another interview with another filmmaker. We will be interviewing Garov Seth, known for his film Multiverse, which is available to stream on Hulu now. So check that out. Get ready to watch that. And then you'll be ready for our interview next Friday. Stick around for those. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at GoodDataPod and on Facebook at GDT Podcast. Check us out there. Check out all our previous episodes. And we will talk to you again on Wednesday. Thank you for listening, folks. Thank you for sticking around to the end. We love you. We'll see you on the next one.